Well, thank you so much, worship team. How about that song and our team? Isn't that amazing how we're brought back to the great news of the gospel every week? Thank you, Patrick and company, for what you guys do for us. Well, I want you all to know a couple of things that are very important to me. Uh, did you know that yesterday I almost bought a clock, but it wasn't the right time? I also learned recently that poorly run fishing companies have a net loss in general. And I learned that when cartoonists play sports, the games are usually drawn. I don't know if you knew that. The invention of the wheel, by the way, created quite a revolution. And a harp, by the way, speaking of music, a harp which sounds too good to be true is probably a liar. Finally, don't worry, lumberjacks can keep accurate records because they understand logs. That's right. That's right. Should I keep going? All day long I could do this, all day long. Interesting thing, the English language, isn't it? It's a language that allows us to play with it, to have what we call double meanings, to say one thing and certainly intend another. And the strength of that is that we're able as storytellers to use the power of that to capture a deep principle, but couch it in less threatening um, language or terminology. Children's books often do this well. For example, if I told you the name of the title of a book called The Little Engine That Could, you might immediately know what that story is about. Now, children would recognize that, and they'd say, what is the story about to them? And their answer would be, it would be about a train that got over a hill. That's what it was about. It didn't think it could, but it did. And adults would realize it actually is about you, young child. It's about teaching you the strength of the human will. You can do more than you think you can. You think you can. You think you can. You think you can. And you actually can if you can get over that hill. We understand that the story is simply a vehicle to carry a deeper meaning underneath it. That's the way all good stories work, by the way. We know that. And the story that we're going to encounter today as we get into the Gospel of Luke is exactly like that. The double meaning is profound. That there is a story and an experience, a moment, not just a story told like a fictitious little engine, but a real moment where Jesus interacts with people that creates a story that is retold and retold and retold. And that story is retold, but there is a uh, subsequent double meaning or deeper meaning behind this story that is an absolute uh, life changer for all of us. So I want to take you there because that story is so profound. If you join me in my Bible, I want you to turn, if you can, to the Gospel of Luke. We are in part six of an eight-part series called Friend of Sinners. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew near you, by the way, and that's our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we'll be glad to have you take that Bible. But Luke chapter six, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter five is where we're at this morning. Um, Luke is the third, what we call gospel in the New Testament, so two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Uh, you'll find basically the gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Luke chapter five, beginning at verse 17. And we've been tracking Jesus kind of walking through um, the ancient Near East, basically walking through Israel, um, range uh, in and around Jerusalem, Judea, and things like that, um, sharing with people, ministering, healing, and teaching. Okay, So check it out here in verses 17 through 26 is what we're, we're going to cover. So here we go. Luke writes, and I'm reading from the NIV. He says, one day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. 
Now, imagine the context. See what you just read there. Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and capital Jerusalem were sitting there. This is a big deal. This is actually the very first time that in the whole Gospel of Luke, Luke introduces to us Pharisees and teachers of the law. And the reason the Pharisees and teachers of the law are here by this point, not just one or two of them, but all of them, from all of these regions are here in this one place. They are here because they are the teachers of the law, not Jesus. They need to make sure that what he's saying is in line with the law. They're policing the environment. And so here's what happens. Verse 18, some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Now, if you have a church background, you may start having flashbacks to flannel graph in Sunday school at this moment. Okay? Because this is a, a vintage, a perfect children's story to put up on flannel graph. And you have people who get stuck up on the roof kind of sideways like this, you know, and they're dropping this man down. But think about what's actually happening for a minute. This is strange. Why would he not be able to get in? You see what verse 18 says there? So this paralytic shows up, his friends carrying him on a mat. They tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus, but they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd. That's pretty significant. Think about, think about the news coverage that would happen in 2017 in the United States of America if someone like Jesus were healing and having the success that he had, and he showed up, let's say, here in Lancaster, and all the local pastors and church people showed up to hear what he had to say, and we blocked the entrances so that someone who was paralyzed couldn't get through because we wouldn't move. It's the only reason He's not allowed to walk in the door because the most religious people don't care about him. Imagine how that would play in the news here. And I'll tell you, the reason that it would play poorly here is because of this moment. Because whether you're a Christian or not, the way that Jesus interacts with a paralytic has changed the world. And it has changed the United States. It has changed most Western countries in how we think ethically about those with special needs, those who need a touch like this. It just has. This is not a natural reaction. There's a reason we have handicapped parking spots at the malls. Those don't exist all over the world. Part of the reason, not all, but part of the reason is the ethic of Jesus and the impact that he has had on our world overall. And so this paralytic shows up with his friends carrying him, and the people don't care because a paralytic is an outsider. The reason that someone is paralyzed in their worldview, we have to get into their mind, is not because they just happen to fall out of a tree or happen to be born that way, but there's some sin that they are paying for somewhere along the line, whether it's the sin of their parents or their grandparents or maybe their own sin, but they are accursed from God. In fact, someone who's a paralytic could not be involved in the priesthood. 
wasn't welcome in what we called the Qumran communities, the communities that were a little more um, religious, kind of spiritual. They, they just were not allowed. Just, you couldn't participate in that. And so there was, no one gave it a second thought. No one was like, oh, hey, hey guys, hey guys, make way. There's someone who really needs Jesus. No one did that. And so the friends were like, well, if y'all aren't going to move, <laughs> we're going to find a way. They climb up onto the roof, and they drop in this paralytic on a mat, kind of like Ocean's Eleven, stealing something from the bank, kind of people sliding down, you know, with the cables on the roof. I don't know how they did it, but they, they come in, and they drop this paralytic right in front of Jesus. And here's what happens, verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, You are healed. Look what he says. When Jesus saw their faith, and by the way, this is the first time that Luke introduces faith in his gospel. This is the first picture of faith we see. He said, friend, friend, not alien, not stranger, but friend, your sins are forgiven. Again, in this world, there is no differentiation between um, sickness and spirituality or politics, or social placement. In the Eastern mind, these all just roll together into one. They, they just do. In our Western boxes, they're compartmentalized, which is why we struggle sometimes to talk about religion or politics with people, because that's not normal conversation for us. But you take any of our missionaries, even some who are serving in tea land, for example, and they will say, you know what? This is a normal conversation. We sit down with tea and we're going to talk about religion because that's what we do because everything is intertwined in the East. Everything is, but not in the West. But in the East it was. And so Jesus says, I know what you all are thinking. This guy's here because of his sin, so I'm just going to put it out there right away. Friend, you're healed. Your sins are forgiven. To which the Pharisees sitting on the front row, the teachers of the law from all of these towns who've come together to police what Jesus is saying, Verse 21, they begin thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Healing is one thing. I've seen many people heal. Jesus healed the leper last week. We understand that. People do that all the time. Magicians do that. That happens. But forgiving sins? Mm -mm. That's different. That's a different animal. And who can forgive sins but God alone? Good question. The answer is nobody. Jesus is sitting there, and he's knowing what they're thinking, verse 22. And he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now, truthfully, I don't know the answer to his question. Which is easier? What do you think? Which is easier, to, get, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? On the one hand, it's easier for me if I were seeing you and talking to you. It would be easier for me to say to you, your sins are forgiven. Because there's no way you could prove or disprove that I've forgiven your sins. That's easier for me to say. On the other hand, it's easier to say get up and walk. Because if I actually could forgive sins, that is a whole nother level than simply healing you. Right? So which is easier? Mm, I don't know. Jesus depends on what you mean. And then Jesus does this next. Verse 24. He's still speaking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at this point. He's taking a break from his teaching. There's all kinds of people around. And he says to them, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he pivots and he turns 
And he puts his attention on the paralytic. And he says to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. Pharisees, teachers of the law, so that you will know that yes, I can forgive sins, since you can't see that, I want you to see this. And when you see this, you will know that the thing you cannot see is just as true as what you can see. And then he turns to the paralyzed man and says, get up, take your mat and go home. Can you imagine that moment? Jesus has just pushed all of his chips onto the table if you ever played poker, okay? I don't know if you did or not. He has gone all in in this moment. He's putting his entire reputation on the line. He didn't say, you know, this man will get better. Just give him some time. We're going to medicate him. He will get better. In that moment, if this doesn't work, it's game over. People are leaving. Right? I mean, this is a big moment. Can you imagine what the people who are standing around the outside of this circle who are just trying to hear, what did he say? Did he say, get up? Did he, he, like, is he ready? What did he, I didn't hear him. Did you hear him? And in this moment where he says, I tell you, when he turns and looks at this man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And can you imagine what it would have been like to be in that house to see this paralyzed man start to make his way up, to roll over, to put his hand down on the floor, to begin to sit up, bend his knees, brace himself, and stand up and take his mat and walk out. Imagine what that would have been like. And Jesus goes on. After he stands up, and he took what had been going on. Everyone, verse 25 Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. And verse 26, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. I would say so. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. And on this day, people saw Jesus do the work of God on this day. Now, this is a story that many of you who have been in church have heard before. But here's a question that I want you to think about. Why would not only Luke, but also Matthew and Mark include this story in their Gospels? Like, why would this story, of all the things that Jesus did, be recorded not just in one Gospel, but two, but three of them? Why would that happen? And in order to answer that question, I need to take you back in time for a minute. In order to understand the significance of why this matters, that Jesus made this point with the paralytic, that it wasn't about the paralytic, but it was about Jesus' ability to forgive sins. I mean, go back in time with you, about 700 years. That was a transition. See that? Here we are. 700 years earlier, in 722 B.C., There was a world power called the Assyrians. The Assyrians conquered the northern part of Israel. And they cast aside their worship and their system. They began to disperse Israelites all throughout the known world. Years later, about 150 years later, when the Assyrians 
lost power to the Babylonians. The Babylonians did the same thing, except the Babylonians moved down south and took control of Jerusalem. And in 586, they destroyed the temple and they destroyed, in essence, get this, the entire identity of the Israelite people, of the Israelite nation, of the Jewish people. They attempted to do that in 586 BC, that the whole nation was gone basically. And people were scattered, dispersed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Many of the men were killed. Many of them were um, taken to be political prisoners. Uh, Families were ripped apart. The ability to worship together was gone. All of the social threads that held you together were ripped apart. The nation had lost its identity. And the reason for that, very important, the reason for that is because the nation dis obeyed. They broke what was called the Mosaic Covenant. They disobeyed God. And so God brought judgment on them in terms of what we call the exile. Now, when the Babylonians lost power to the Persians 50 years later, 50 years later, imagine this, in 536, the Persians take over and they say to all these scattered Israelites, you know what, you guys are not a threat anymore. You want to go back and populate Jerusalem, go back to that area? We don't really care. You're not a threat to us. You have no ability to do anything. Go on back. Can you imagine what it would be like if we were scattered in the far reaches of Canada? We were moved down to South America. We were moved out to wherever, out to, to California, although their cultures may be more similar to us in South America. But we were just scattered. And it took 50 years at the earliest for us to get back to this area. Some of us would no longer be around. Many of us would have children. Some of those children would be 40 years old. That's super old. Okay. What in the world would our concern be in returning to this place 50 years after we were dispersed? Some of us have been gone for, over two, for about 200 years. Here's the big concern. Guys, it is a grace of God that we're back. We need this never to happen again, right? Right? Like, wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't there be so much resolve that you'd say, I don't want this ever, ever, ever to happen again. And enter into the nation of Israel people like Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, who were leaders at that time, and they said, guys, we will make sure that this will never happen again. And there was a spiritual zeal that burned deep that said that disobedience that brought a blight and a shame on our nation, our identity, that will never happen again. We'll rebuild the walls, we'll rebuild the system of worship, we'll rebuild the temple, we'll rebuild it all. This cannot happen again. What happened during that time, when they come back into, into Jerusalem, is they didn't have the temple yet, they're just starting to build, and what two big things happen. One is the synagogue is developed. In other words, because we don't have the temple built yet, anywhere where there's ten Jewish men who can gather, they can worship together. And it becomes much more informal. Secondly, because we don't have copies of the law yet, something called oral law and oral tradition comes into play, where we just start to explain to you what it means to obey. In other words, you've heard of the Ten Commandments, okay? Love the Lord your God, you know, have no other God before him. Well, here's a question. What does that mean to have no other God before you? How am I supposed to know how to do that? What does it mean not to covet? Because there's a lot of nuances of that. I don't think I covet that robe. I just like it. Like, but is that coveting? I don't know. How am I supposed to know? Because the last thing I want to do is sin again and be exiled again. And so there was this movement in the nation of Israel to be deeply obedient. Can you understand why? Deeply obedient to the law of God to serve him. 
because they didn't want the exile ever, ever, ever to happen again. People like Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel ended up dying. The next generation, the next generation, the next generation, the next generation continued to kind of bring the same emphasis. Guys, obedience to God's law will bring us close to him and keep this exile stuff away. The great, 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 go on a couple more times, grandchildren of Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah were sitting in the front row when Jesus heals the paralytic. The Pharisees and teachers of the law had in their conscience The reason that we are here is because we don't want some crazy taking us away from obedience to God. Because this national embarrassment of the exile happened to us. And we cannot let this happen again. And so we will police the teaching. And yes, there's Ten Commandments, but we're going to help you. And listen, this is exactly what it was meant to be. Religious leaders trying to help the people know, how do you keep the Ten Commandments? The answer is, we'll give you 613 of them. That's what the Pharisees and teachers of the law did. They didn't do it to burden the people. They did it so they could help the people, so the people would know in every situation, aha, This is how far I can walk on the Sabbath without, you know, ruining the Sabbath. This is how much I can care without caring too much. This is how much I can love. This is all these things. This is what I can do with food. This is the cleanliness of all. That was not meant to be a pain. It was meant to serve the people because, man, we don't ever, ever, ever want the exile to happen again. And here is the very important thing. If you kind of missed all that and you're like, that history thing blew me away, I have no idea what you're talking about. Zone it right back in here for this. Because this is the thing that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law missed. And all religious people who respond this way miss this. And that is this. Sin is never cured by obedience. Sin is never cured by obeying your way through it. It is never cured that way. It just never, ever, ever, ever is. And the problem with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is that it was easy to look at the paralytic and say, he has sinned. Which is why Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And then healed him. To push on that. To push on that for them. It's easy to see the person out there. The problem with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they didn't believe that sin impacted them. They weren't sinful because they didn't do anything wrong. And if they did, they confessed immediately, but man, they were good because they could obey their way through their sin and they could find forgiveness based on their obedience. Like, we haven't done it. Sin hasn't deeply impacted my will and my character and my nature. It's only sin when I do something wrong. And I know that I'm not doing anything wrong because the Ten Commandments, I've made them 613 and I have followed every one of them. And here's what Proverbs has to say about people like this. There are those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth. That's difficult language. This is why Jesus pushes on it. And I will tell you, this problem continued This problem continued 300 years after this story of the paralytic. There was a little baby born in the British Isles 
who ended up growing up to become a Christian leader in the city of Rome. Very influential, great speaker and writer, a guy that you would probably listen to if you were alive during that time. His name was Pelagius. And Pelagius taught that humanity is essentially neutral. We're not sinners or good people. We're just neutral. And we become sinners when we do wrong things. Our culture, by the way, has grabbed onto this by and large and pulled it further to say we are by and large good. Not just neutral. We are by and large good people who every now and then fall into bad things, but it certainly isn't as bad as the murderers or the terrorists or anybody else out there who does super bad things. As long as you aren't doing anything stupid bad, then you're going to be okay. And Pelagius essentially taught this. I just want you to know this. If you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, this is part of your history. He had an opponent named Augustine, and Augustine taught this from the Scriptures, that essentially, at the fall of Adam... Sin has impacted our nature, our will, kind of like the paralytic. We're alive, but we can't move to God because of sin. It's what theologians call total depravity. We are stuck in our ability to move. And Augustine taught this. And Pelagius said, I don't think so. And here's what you need to know. If you are a Christian... In 431 A.D., at the Third Ecumenical Council of Ephesus, Pelagius' position was condemned. And every major council and creed since then has affirmed what Augustine taught and not what Pelagius did. Which means this, for you and for me, that there is, in the Christian world, there is no other way to have our sins forgiven. That we are people who fundamentally are changed by sin. And not even our sin. We don't become sinners when we sin. We are born with this paralysis. We are like the little engine that couldn't. And this is why what Jesus did is so, so, so important. And here's the message. It's very, very simple. Only Jesus forgives. Only, only Jesus forgives. You and I cannot obey our way through to get his favor. If you want to call yourself something, you can call yourself something, but don't call yourself Christian if you have a different view of sin. This isn't what Christians believe. Christians believe and have believed historically that sin, just like the story of the paralytic, beautiful story to communicate this deeper reality, you and I are paralyzed by the depth of sin, and we are stuck in an inability to respond to God. We cannot obey our way through and earn And this is why the gospel is such good news. So freeing when Jesus says to you and to me and to anyone who will hear, get up. You are 
forgiven. And that gives the paralytic life. Do you want to know why this story is told in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Because this story, when retold and retold and retold and retold to children, to the next generation, is exactly the message of the hope of the Gospel. That Jesus alone has the authority to forgive. Please stop trying to earn it. Please stop thinking that there is someone worse than you. If it hasn't got into my heart and your heart that my condition is just the same as the terrorist and as the murderer and as the people who might go into a school and try to do something evil to our children, if it hasn't sunk into the psyche and the soul of you and me that our sin puts us in the exact same position, then the doctrine of sin in the Scriptures has not yet gotten a hold of our hearts. And if that hasn't gotten a hold of our hearts, the hope of the gospel will mean very little to us. The reason that Pelagius' position was condemned is if Pelagius is right and we can choose to do good or evil, and we're essentially neutral, we can earn our way to heaven. And I better follow all of the rules. This is why it matters. Only, only Jesus can forgive. And this is why this story is told over. And this is why Jesus, with all in front of all the Pharisees and teachers of the law who wanted to obey God with all they had, didn't want the national embarrassment of the exile anymore, said to them, in front of them, your sins are forgiven. And if you want to know if this is happening or not, if you're not sure if this is going to happen, let me tell you, paralytic, get up, go home to where you belong. You are healed. So for all of us this morning, I don't know where you land. I don't know where you fall on this. But I just want to say that by and large, we rarely will make time unless you're abnormal, and you might be abnormal in a good way, we rarely make time for space in our lives for what we call confession. For space to stop and say, wait a minute, God, keep me from being so intoxicated with my awesomeness that I don't see the deep grace of the gospel that saved me. And let me put this in balance for you. Let me put this in balance for you. I believe that humanity has incredible, incredible value and dignity. Incredible dignity and value. But not because of what we do, but because we have the image of God stamped on us. We are alive because of that. But sin has paralyzed me and it has paralyzed you, and we need to get dropped into the feet of our Savior and have him touch us. And so, you know that little pride that won't allow you to apologize to your spouse? You know that little anger you have with your kids? You know that little edge where you don't want to obey your parents because you think they're just dumb? Like, you know that little thing you're doing at work that isn't quite in line, but it's close and just kind of on the pushing the realm of ethical? Like, all of that, man, welcome, 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 welcome to the paralysis of sin. We are dead in our sin and our transgressions. But come on, only Jesus heals and forgives and saves. And so I want to give us time this morning here to process this.
and to come back to God and say, God, I, I want to I have a moment to confess. I want to have a moment, just a moment, where I can slow it down a little bit and remember the truth of what John wrote later on. See, John said, if we think we're without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. But then he also said this in 1 John 1, 9, which some of you know. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Like, this isn't a hammer down to make us feel shame and guilt and terrible. This is a beautiful offering of hope and life. If we confess, he will forgive. And this is the picture of the paralytic. This is the picture of the paralytic. He's healed and he's up. How else are we going to do it without the hope of the gospel? How else will your marriage be restored? How else will your character be refined? How else will your love and your heart for God and for your neighbor be rejuvenated without the healing touch of God just to speak in and touch us and renew us? How else? So I'd like to give us some moments here, some time here. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up now. If they will, they can walk right on by me here and get in their spot. They're going to end up playing a song here momentarily. And if you would like to join in with the song, you certainly can. You also don't need to. And here's my priority for you. Here's what I hope for you. That I hope, man, man, I hope. I hope that if nothing else, if you've tuned out and just tuned back in because people are walking up and down, just tune in for a minute on this. Man, I hope so badly that you and I will never forget that message. That only, come on, only Jesus will ever forgive and touch and heal you. Our obedience, our goodness will never get it done. We're paralyzed. But the great news of the gospel is what John wrote in First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive, and no one else can do that. So let me encourage you, in the next moments that come, King David of Israel gave us a great model of how to do this. He invited the Spirit of God. He said, search me and know me. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And maybe that's a good prayer for you right now, to say to God, God, I don't even know what's going on, but search me and know me. See if there is any offensive way in me and and lead me in the way everlasting. And if God is speaking to you to do something, man, let's go. Let's do it. Because we're forgiven people who can get up and walk and do what we need to do. So take a few moments now. Worship team will begin playing. And as you would like, feel free to join in. You don't have to. But take a few moments now. Confess in privately in, in your own seat there. Head bow, whatever you want to do. And bring that before God as we together as people come before